Now, if you'll turn with me to that Romans 7 passage, let me read you my text. Beginning at verse 13, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 13 uh, through verse 25 reads like this. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, up to this point in, um, in Romans chapter 7, Paul has been describing his pre-Christian existence. He closes, as you see, he closes that section of, of this chapter with verse 12 by saying, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He um, commends the law <clears throat> and by so doing, he condemns himself. That is, if the law is wholly right, that means that I am wholly wrong. And my friends, until until we see that, the gospel is always going to be offensive. You're, You're never going to see your need for Christ's atonement until you first see that which made that atonement necessary, which was our sin. Now, at verse 13, the direction of the text shifts and we get a a discussion of Paul's battle as a Christian. You remember I called it, I called the pre-Christian one the battle that we cannot win because that's the one where I was attempting to um, uh, create my own righteous standing through my own performance. That's the one I can't win. But now in verse 13, he shifts to uh, another battle, a Christian battle. 
And um, that's the battle that we cannot lose. Now, gang, b- before I uh, address the text itself or try to prove to you that verses 13 through 25 are describing a Christian, I want to mention a book, um, a book that I have mentioned before. In fact, um, I've mentioned it a couple of times around here. It is a, um, it is a classic It is a brief novella from Robert Louis Stevenson. You've heard of it. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, Stevenson was born in 1850, and he died 44 years later in Samoa. He was only 44 when he died. Uh, His grandfather, the author of this book, uh, his grandfather was um, was a minister in the Church of Scotland, and his parents were devout Scottish Presbyterians. The Mr. Hyde of this book, now you remember if you've read it, um, if you haven't read it, it's a quick read and I think you should, but, um, but the Mr. Hyde of the book is the monster. Dr. Jekyll is the normal guy. Mr. Hyde is the monster, and most people who n- know something about this book uh, suggest that Mr. Hyde is named after a Presbyterian minister in Hawaii that Stevenson didn't like, (laughs) which I thought was kind of funny. Um, But most people who examine things like this agree that this book is an account of Stevenson's own personal intense spiritual struggle. And some of it, he got right. Um, some of it he didn't, but uh, I, I want to say that his description of the pre-Christian days, in the main, he got right. But I want to read you just a couple of quick snatches from it, um, and, I, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but um, this won't take long, but listen to this language from Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, 19th century, classic Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, We thought it was a monster movie. It's not. Listen to him. He talks about a profound duplicity of life. This is on page 70. Man's dual nature. I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. He speaks of a perennial war among my members. That man is not truly one, but truly two. He talks about a primitive duality of man. I was radically both. Gang, Stevenson saw something in himself that that alarms him or that alarmed him. He saw that he had a capacity to do good, but he also had a capacity to do evil. And that evil, he liked. Um, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to my original self and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands exulting in the freshness of these sensations and in the act I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. You see, my capacity for evil 
was worse than I had ever dreamed. And I liked it. Um, He says, between these two, I now felt I had to choose. Strange as my circumstances were, the terms of this debate are as old and commonplace as man. Much of the same inducements and alarms cast the die for my tempted and trembling sinner, and it fell out with me as it falls with so vast a majority of my fellows that I chose the better part and was found wanting in the strength to keep it. Guys, you know, that's just a restatement of verse 15 of chapter 7. Now, let me read you one other paragraph and I'm done. At the back of my little edition, there, there are people who assess the book, uh, summarize the book. One of the summaries comes from G.K. Chesterton, who is one of my heroes. And Chesterton writes this. The real stab of the story is not in the discovery that the one man is two men, but in the discovery that the two men are one man. After all the diverse wanderings and warring of those two incompatible beings, there was still only one man born and only one man buried. The point of the story is not that a man can cut himself off from his conscience, but that he cannot. The surgical operation is fatal in the story. It is an amputation of which both the, in which both parts die. Jekyll, even in dying, declares the conclusion of the matter that the load of man's moral struggle cannot be thus escaped. The reason is that there can never be equality between the evil and the good. Jekyll and Hyde are not twin brothers. They are rather, as one of them truly remarks, like father and son. And after all, Jekyll created Hyde. Hyde would never have created Jekyll. He only destroyed Jekyll. Guys, my point in reading you all that is that Stevenson was in touch with something that is being discussed in Romans 7. This... um, This battle that I alluded to last week, this battle in which we find ourselves. Now, the battle in verses 1 through 12 is the one that you can't win, trying to establish your own righteousness through performance. That's one one you'll never win. But then that one changes, and it becomes a battle um, now that I'm a Christian. Um, And that's the one... Is that, that's the one that I, I cannot lose. It's a warfare that is different than the one I used to experience back as a non-Christian. Um, back when I, before I became a Christian, I, I was trying to establish my own worth before God with, by my performance. And it was the law that brought me to see how futile was that attempt and just how evil I am. But
Now I'm a Christian. And the battle continues. Did somebody ever tell you to come to Jesus and all your problems were over? They lied to you. There, there is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, in which the battle that we fight as Christians is even more intense. Now, I am saying that the verses 13 through 25 are describing Paul in his Christian experience, okay? That was the position of Augustine. It's been reaffirmed numerous times all the way up to the Reformers. But I want to show you four reasons why I believe and they believe that this is describing a Christian. Um, number one. First of all, guys, um, it's not clear in the English, but it is clear in the Greek. The tense of the verbs in verses 13 through 25 changes from the tense of the verbs in 1 through 12. The tense of the verbs in 13 through 25 are in the present tense. Not in 1 through 12. They're in the past tense. It's called the aorist in the Greek. So the verbs shift tenses from past to present. Now, that's one reason. Here's a second one. Guys, non-Christians do not long to keep God's law. Christians do. Look at what he said. Let me just read 22 first, but verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Non-Christians don't delight in the law of God in the inner being. He says it different ways in verses 14 and verse 16. One of the evidences that this is a Christian man talking in verses 13 through 25 is because he delights in God's law. Do you? Because one of the characteristics of a regenerate heart is that it, re, it rejoices, it, it delights in God's law. Here's a third reason. You will note, I hope, that the author here, in, that Paul in verses 13 through 25, is looking forward to a deliverance from this body that is future. He says that in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to say, it's, it's the Lord Jesus in verse 25. Christians understand that this side of heaven, the battle goes on. There is a principle of sin that he mentions in this section three or four times. In a way, we long for that deliverance eternally. Non-Christians don't. Scares the death out of them. It scares them. It scares them to death. To think there's some kind of eternity awaiting us. But here's the fourth reason. And for me, this is the coup de grace. This is the thing that convinces me that Paul is describing a Christian experience. And it's in verse 15. Guys, when I read that a minute ago, 
bet you a lot of your hearts left. Gosh, uh, I didn't know Paul felt like that because I feel like that. I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You find that ever descriptive of you? But guys, here's the point. You will notice that he says, I find myself doing the very thing. Here it is. I hate. I hate my sin. I hate my sin. Every time I see it, I hate my sin. Ladies and gentlemen, do you hate your sin? I'm not saying, did you commit it? I know you did. I mean, I know we do. But do you hate it? Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is an evidence of a redeemed heart. Now, all that I've just told you has been summarized in theological circles in a Latin phrase. I want you to see it. We've got a slide. There it is. Simul usus et peccator. Everything that I've just been trying to prove to you has been summarized under that heading. If you know Latin, you can read it. It's pretty simple. But if you don't, let me read it for you. Simul. At the same time, we get our word simultaneously from that word. Simul. Simultaneously, at the same time, justice. At the same time, just and righteous. Et, which means and. And then peccator. Sinful. At the same time, just and sinful. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know who that describes? It describes you. It describes me. We are simul justus at peccator. We are at the same time just righteous and sinful. I am free from the condemnation of the law. I am dead to the law as a means by which to justify me. And I am married to a new husband. That's what verses one through four are all about. But I'm still in the battle. I, I, uh, I find that sin continues to the point that I even want to say at times, I don't even get myself. The good that I would, I do not do. But the very evil I hate, I find myself doing it. Oh, wretched man that I am. I don't want to do that, but guess what? I did it. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know where Robert Louis Stevenson ended up at age 44 when he died, but that is what he's struggling with in this book. 
you know, I'm not a great evangelist. I'm more of a Bible teacher than an evangelist, but I love to share the gospel. And every time I tell somebody that heaven is a free gift, it cannot be earned and reserved, and that forgiveness is free, almost invariably, uh, people, I shouldn't say that, it's not invariably, I would say half the time, they say to me, oh, wait a minute, does this mean if I receive the gift of eternal life that tomorrow I won't sin again? No, it doesn't, believe, it doesn't mean that. Because you see, my friend, we are all single uses at peccator. I'm free from the condemnation of the law. I'm dead to the law as a means of saving me. I have a new husband. I'm in union with Christ. But I brought into the kingdom with me a sin principle. He, that's the genius of these 13 verses, ladies and gentlemen. I find that it was sin within me. And I am delivered eternally and I am delivered day by day by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a battle that I cannot lose. But may I assure you, the battle goes on. And it's made worse because I don't want to rely on Christ. I want to earn it by my own moral rectitude. I, I want to be my own savior, not depend on one. And so how do I try to deliver myself? Through my performance. Through being a good boy or girl. Through law. Doesn't work, does it? And as a Christian, I'm dead to that. Guys, um, I, I got to hurry, but let's just suppose that as a non-Christian, in your non-Christian days, you had an addiction, okay? Um, and your addiction was uh, porn or alcohol or anger or gaming or your telephone, your, your device, it doesn't matter. And, and in back, back in the good old days, you know, when I was a pagan, um, I would try to stop this addiction, but I would fail, and then I would beat myself up over my failure. But now as a Christian, the struggle continues, even to the, even to the point of failing. And you think, or the, at least the devil may whisper in your ear, ah, you're, 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 not, you're, not, you're not changed. You're, you're, you're still the same old bottom feeder you always were. Wrong. Gang, it's a different battle. As a non-Christian, that sin was characteristic of, of who I was. But as a Christian, sin is my enemy. I hate it. Before I, 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 I wanted to avoid it, but the reason that I wanted to avoid it is because I was trying to appear to be a good little boy before you. The difference can be illustrated like this. This is rather rudimentary and elementary. I hope I don't offend you. But, but the difference is like this. 
Uh, it's Monday morning. I have to go to work. I've just kissed my wife goodbye. I've headed out the front door. I'm going to get in the car and head off to the office. But on the way to the car, I slip in a mud hole and I fall down. And I'm disgusted. I get up and I clean myself off as best I can and kind of straighten my tie back up and, and go on to get in the car and go to work. But I left the door open. About 30 minutes later, my, my toddler comes out the front door. He sees that same mud hole. He dives in and has a big time, just uh, having a ball in the mud hole. Do you see it? The non-Christian finds the mud hole and loves it. The Christian falls into the mud hole from time to time. And, and, and it's not a happy occasion. And there are consequences to having slipped up. But it doesn't threaten to undo me the way it used to. And in addition to that, I'm finding that the temptation to do that is becoming less and less. But the battle goes on. Okay, then Dr. Young, tell us how are we to wage this battle? Let me mention three things. One of them has some subpoints under it, but um, here's number one. Ladies and gentlemen, if you simply knew the truth of, these, of this, this section of Scripture, that is that there is a principle of sin within you, if you just knew that and you believed it and you took it seriously, then you would never again toy with sin. Sending an email to an old high school sweetheart boyfriend. Why would you do that? Ladies and gentlemen, if you've got a pack of dynamite on your back, you don't play around a bonfire. And if you know that you've got a pack of dynamite within, you don't toy with sin. But secondly, you would also, if you knew this principle, you would never again judge another Christian harshly. Because you see, I'm the one with the beam in my eye. I don't have time to worry about your speck in your eye. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with my own beam. And thirdly, we would never again be high-minded because when you're honest with yourself and you're honest with yourself about how you struggle, it tends to be accompanied with a, with a humility that is gospel-esque. But one thing that you would always do is that you would walk in the fear of God Ladies and gentlemen, I am so grateful to God that at this stage in my walk with Christ, he has not yet allowed me to give vent to all of my sin. I could do it tomorrow. But up to now, he hasn't let me. Now, two other quick things. 
Guys, if you're in Romans 7, if you'll just go back one page, it might even be on the same page for you. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 11, where he says this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's an interesting, it's an interesting Greek word, logetzeste. Um, it's, it's in the imperative, that is, it's a command, and it says, you must consider yourself dead to sin. It has to do with the way that you look at yourself. Um, I have been set free, and no longer can my addiction ever rule me. I'm free of it. Now, here's the last thing. That was number two. Here's the third thing. In, in, in just trying to help the people of God fight the battle. Guys, if you can find 2 Corinthians 3 real quick, um, this is my last point. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Again, Paul is writing and he says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Guys, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, there is a very complex Greek word. In fact, it's, it's even hard to pronounce. It has 16 Greek letters in it. Can you imagine a word with 16 uh, letters in it? It's called a hapax legomena. That means it's, it only appears one time in the whole Bible. Um, here's my best stab. Katoptrizamanoi. I'm not sure that's right. Um, but it's a word, when, it, when he says beholding, it, it, it's a word that means to behold as in a mirror. And, and you will notice beholding the glory of the Lord. I'm looking long and hard at something. Um, I'm reflecting on something. And I'm reflecting on it long enough until it changes me. Um, I'm beholding the glory of the Lord. I are, are being transformed. This is a process into the same image. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm looking at that thing. I'm staring at that thing long enough until I grow to resemble it. And what am I staring at? The glory of the Lord. Gang, the Holy Spirit changes us by affecting the heart and life by what you're staring at. I'm staring at the person and work of Jesus Christ until it changes me and I begin to resemble him more and more. Guys, here's a thought. Take it or leave it. Go to Matthew 8 this week. Matthew 8. It's just one of dozens of places that you can go in the New Testament. And read it one time every week, every day for a week. 
In Matthew 8, Jesus cleansed a leper. He, he heals um, a servant of a centurion. He uh, calms the storm. He heals two demon-possessed men and throws the demons into the pigs who go to the sea. In one chapter. Now, go reflect on that. Go kata optridzamanoi. Matthew chapter 8. Go behold as if you were looking into a mirror the glory of the Lord that's on display in Matthew chapter 8 and look at it long and hard until you find yourself becoming more like it. I'm going to stare at it until it changes me. Guys, we reflect on Christ and his love for us until that thing that we thought that we had to have loses its grip on my affections. Christ must become more beautiful to us than the thing that we thought that we had to have. We don't need to need it because the thing that we're looking at so much more beautiful. Do you know how to get a rusty knife out of the hand of a two-year-old? Offer him a popsicle. Stare at it until Jesus Christ becomes altogether lovely. And those things that I used to grip saying I had to have them. I find myself discarding. That's how we fight the battle. Our Father... um, for those of us who know this Savior, would you, um, would you use these Pauline instructions to um, help us succeed better? Oh God, if you have led people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior and are still in those pre-Christian days, not yet, not yet uh, redeemed, would you cause them to see that the battle in which they are in at this moment It's a battle that they will never win because they'll never be able to produce enough to satisfy the demands of the law. Lord, we who know you, we gave that up knowing that we could never produce enough and discovering through the law just how futile was our attempt and how wicked we are. And so now we've come to embrace a Savior who to us is altogether lovely. Might Jesus Christ become more and more beautiful to us as we as we worship today. We ask it of course in Jesus name. Amen.